Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hi everyone, it's Darren Lim here on Thursday the 14th of September, back with another episode of Australia in the World. This week, we're talking the topic of international development policy and foreign aid, more formally known as official development assistance. The motivation for this topic is the government's release last month of a new international development policy, it being almost 10 years since the last one. As the foreign minister says in her foreword, the world has changed. While we all know that to be true, thinking about this through my own academic lens, it's really startling how much this space has evolved since I studied a course titled The Political Economy of Development back in 2007, I think it was, in my master's degree, which was taught by an immensely erudite and warm professor named Atul Kohli. Back then, there were four central debates among scholars of development, and I remember this because I went back and checked the syllabus to make sure my memory was correct. The first was state versus market, meaning what is the optimal model of economic organization to cause growth and development? Second, globalization and the extent to which it presented an opportunity or a constraint on development. Third, growth versus distribution, which of course touches on questions of poverty and inequality. And fourth, democracy versus authoritarianism. What is the optimal model of political order to cause growth and whether or not successful development can spark political reform. In that class, we studied the East Asian miracle, especially the concept of the developmental state, looking at Japan, South Korea, and of course, China. We swept across the world to study a few successes, but mostly failures from across Africa, Latin America, and South Asia. Two words that appeared nowhere in my syllabus were geopolitics and security. And while geopolitics does not appear in the government's new strategy, nor does the word China for that matter, the word security appears 13 times, compared with 14 times for poverty, seven for inequality, nine for growth, and 48 for climate. So there's a lot to talk about, starting with what the goals and practice of development policy are, how they are changing over time, and how prisms like geopolitics and climate distort or refract traditional questions of development. And so I'm thrilled to be joined in this conversation by Bridie Rice, founder and CEO of the Development Intelligence Lab based here in Canberra. Bridie has a background in government, NGOs, and the private sector, including overseeing Australia's bilateral legal cooperation programs as a director at the Attorney General's Department, running public sector consulting as a senior manager for Ernst & Young, being embedded in the Papua New Guinean Department of Justice to advise on anti-corruption, and representing Australia's leading NGOs to government as a director of the Australian Council for International Development. She's also a Fulbright Scholar and co-founder of the Asia-Pacific Development Diplomacy and Defence Dialogue. Bridie, I'm so pleased to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thanks, Darren. It's absolutely super to be here too. Okay, I want to start with the very basics. The focus of this podcast is foreign policy as a tool of statecraft, which leads us to talk a lot about diplomacy. Development policy might be part of foreign policy, but it's also distinct. And I need help clarifying those distinctions in theory and then in practice. So let's start with a the theory. 
I'm a broken record on this, as our listeners would know, but I want to remind them of how Allen defined foreign policy. Quote, foreign policy is the way the state manages its relationships with other actors in the international system to preserve its national security and prosperity, protect its interests and advance its values at a minimum cost in treasure and blood. Effective foreign policy ensures that no matter how international developments unfold, we will always have options to act. My question, Bridie, are there standard goals of development policy that everyone can agree upon, or is this even a contested question? Oh, Darren, you know you're talking to an academic when you're uh, kicking things off with definitions here. But I guess maybe just to, to back up a second, I think we need to be very, very clear about two basic concepts that we sometimes confuse um, before we can tackle the question of, I guess, what are the goals of a development policy? And the first real question that you, I think you're actually asking is, what is development? And, and for me, this concept of development is absolutely universal. Every country, ours included, is constantly on a search to think about how we structure, for example, our Medicare system to ensure people can access healthcare. We're thinking at the moment of development issues in our country like uh, cost of living pressures or how would we restructure our early childhood support so we get better female participation in the workforce and close the gender gap. So development and that question of what is development, I think is that area of public policy where we as citizens interacting with our private sector and our state are constantly trying to work out what is the good life here in Australia, what's important to us, what is possible. And for some eras that that good life might be defined for us through the lens of economic growth and we've seen periods of that in Australia. And in other areas, including, for example, through our last election, we see big shifts, our people demanding a government that's caring more about the environment, for example. My first starting proposition for you in, in understanding what development policy is, is actually that the idea of development is something universal. Every country is on a development journey that is unique to that nation and every country's development challenges are going to be pretty different. But what is absolutely consistent is that when countries think of development, when our leaders talk to other leaders in the Indo-Pacific, they're talking about weighing up really big choices around what's going to shift the needle for them. So typically they're balancing the needs of the economy, the environment, social progress, security, and they're coming up with different answers. As your course taught you way back when, for Rwanda to develop after a genocide, there was a choice made to invest heavily in peace building and technology. For China, it was manufacturing. For Indonesia, you're seeing extraordinary investments in their knowledge ecosystem and the quality of government decision making. Perhaps for Korea, shipbuilding was a really critical period. So what you're seeing in, is countries making bets about how they will best develop, ours included. And so if that's then development, then put pretty simply, Australian development policy is the way that we organise our cooperation with those countries and the way that we deliver it through our development assistance for a social and an economic development outcome. And for Australia, the bulk of that assistance is governed by international OECD rules that is saying that a development policy's agreed goal is, surprise, surprise, social and economic development. 
right? Bit of a no-brainer, a bit uncontroversial, I would say. Um, but I think your question is really getting at the heart of the Canberra bubble, which is, is this an uncontested idea in Australia? And absolutely, you're right, it is highly contested. And that's because in the Canberra bubble, it's all very well for those international norms to be dictating that a development policy should be focused on unlocking that good life, that economic and social development that we're all grappling with. But you'd have to be living under a rock if you were not seeing the geostrategic headwinds facing the region. And there is simply no doubt that Australia's development program over the last decade or so is being asked to be everything to everyone all at once. So absolutely there are concerns around PRC operations in the region and there is a gravitational pull to say, hey, this aid program that positions Australia offshore in the Indo-Pacific, perhaps we should be using it to generate elite influence dividends for Australia, potentially sometimes at the cost of a development outcome. So look, in theory, Darren, absolutely uncontested. Development policy achieves development outcomes. In practice, decision by decision, I think the picture is a lot more complex and I think this policy is trying to resolve some of those tensions. You've already opened up multiple lines of inquiry for me and so I'm going to skip ahead to a question I prepared for later but I think is necessary to bring in now, which building on the idea that each country is making its own choices about what it means to live the good life and, and what it means to, to thrive and flourish. Um, I think back then to a report in the Sydney Morning Herald, I think from November last year, which described how officials from Australia's Cyber Security Centre, which sits within the Australian Signals Directorate, assisted the Vanuatu government in rebuilding their IT systems after they were brought down by a ransomware attack such that workers had been reduced to using pen and paper. That's development policy, I assume. And whether it's cybersecurity, digital governance, um, as you sort of intimated, any aspect of a modern, well-functioning government like healthcare or gender participation in the workforce, really anything that relates to a well-functioning state could potentially be captured through a development paradigm. Now, my old-fashioned paradigm from the mid-2000s thought of development through the lens of building infrastructure, roads and hospitals and schools, maternal health programs, post-conflict justice, like you mentioned in Rwanda, reconciliation mechanisms. But today, it seems like if you graduate with an IT degree from the ANU, you're as likely, maybe even more likely, to be well-placed to offer development assistance as someone with a traditional degree in development studies, at least as I imagined it, remember it from the mid 2000s. So I, I guess I want you to react to that, but how do you then bound the practice of development? How does a country or an individual even specialize in development if everything is included potentially in the, the bucket of what it means to develop? Oh, Darren, I listened to your podcast um, so many times over the years and I, I thought I was prepared for your, you know, four-dimensional questions, but I, I'm pretty sure you just capped out at about six six dimensions there. Um, <laughs> what, what you're actually saying here is that as a nation that delivers development, we kind of have this weird hangover um, and this, this stereotype of what we actually think and the way we perpetuate the idea of, of development to the citizens of our country. And, and I guess... 
the well-known development projects that we're kind of most used to when we grew up watching those advertisements for, for World Vision and child sponsorship. Yeah. The, there's this stereotypical notion that development is is charity, is I think the imagination. And there's a beautiful arm to that, right? Australia does have a moral obligation. We do have a responsibility to be good citizens in our region. And there is a lot of fantastic work that happens to through the development program on things like um, providing access to water, community-driven infrastructure, NGOs supporting women's rights organisations, disability inclusion, the sorts of stereotypical development support programs that really deliver services for vulnerable populations. But i got to say, I'm increasingly worried that that's quite a, a dated and a really limiting way of of thinking about development and actually a lot of what we do as a nation as a development partner is really darn sophisticated partnership exactly as you said support to build up critical cybersecurity capabilities i've just been in the mekong looking at projects where we've got authorities asking for australian support in tech around child protection online investigations into child pornography looking to break transnational criminal rings that are absolutely undermining the ability of mekong governments to lead development in their own nation we also have things like private sector investments so there are some programs where australia is putting in a dollar of Australian aid money and leveraging $5 worth of private sector capital for investments in gender equality and climate change work, right? So this spectrum of what you do as a development donor is absolutely broad and you can be entirely overwhelmed by that and you can sit there and go, oh my gosh, anything and everything could be development. And, and that's right at a national policy setting piece. But in practice, the way that we make those choices is country by country. So our government sits down with the people, communities and governments of another nation. They're looking to see what that good life agenda is in that other country. And then they're looking to match up Australian support where the idea would be we can support that good life trajectory a little bit faster, a little bit quicker, a little bit better, perhaps at a bigger scale or in a more sustainable way. And really that is the heart of development cooperation. It's a sophisticated partnership where Australia has been darn practical and getting in behind the development aspirations of another country. So you're right, there are different types of practitioners and I'm sure that we can go a bit further into that. But I think the distinction between, for example, being a a great tech head sitting here, you know, in Australia and then also being a development practitioner, I think there is a different skill set. So when Australia is solving Australian technical problems, it looks a lot different with a lot different resource environments and structures behind us, a lot better internet connectivity, for example, um, to pretend that that person who's an expert in Australia can then deploy those expertise in the back blocks of Vanuatu or Samoa or somewhere else is, I've got to say, a little bit far-fetched and probably at the heart of some of the challenges we've had when Australia's tried to export our expertise without locally adapting it to the context. Yes, development can be everything, but in practice, it's, it tends to be quite a ring fence targeted project that Australia works on on the ground. And to stick with the in practice line of inquiry, I mean, we have what, 10, 20, I don't know how many Commonwealth government departments, and then we have 
multiple departments at the state level and even at the municipal level, all of whom are part of the state and, and, and helping solve problems, hopefully, uh, of living the good life and, and, and allowing the population to flourish. But our development policy is led by DFAT. It's coordinated by DFAT, who obviously cannot have a nationwide capability to solve every problem. So how do we actually deliver these development programs? Who are the development practitioners and who are they working for? This is actually something that's that's come up with you, Darren, when we're working together at, at the War College. It comes up for me when I'm teaching at the Diplomatic Academy or at the National Security College as well. And I've stumbled across this thing that I think we, we sometimes forget and would do well to remember in terms of how development is delivered overseas in a very different kind of way. And I think the best way to explain perhaps the difference between how DFAT has to deliver its development program is, is by comparing it to, for example, how defence works or how you would work in a, in a DFAT bilateral area. So, I mean, this is an oversimplification, but, but if you imagine, Darren, that you're a bureaucrat working in the defence department, then you're taking your, your policy settings, for example, from the last strategic update, and that is really an advancing an assessment of Australia's interests and then when you're working offshore on behalf of the Defence Department, you're delivering that approach or, or even that project ultimately through Australian public servants. So you've got a command and control structure where your offshore operations are by and large delivered through the Army, Navy, maybe a little bit of civil military cooperation as well. And, and it's fairly similar if you're working in a DFAT bilateral area. You've got, a, albeit dating foreign policy white paper, but you've got those, those international policy settings, you've got foreign ministerial speeches to take your cue from. And, and you're really taking Alan's foreign policy definition to heart in assessing Australian interests. And when you go and deliver that offshore, be it through a negotiation or a bilateral engagement, again, you're delivering it through Australian Commonwealth public servants, through through diplomats. You do, of course, have some track two engagement, or of course, your diplomats are engaging in private sectors offshore as well. But this isn't the dominant delivery mode. But then if you turn your mind to development, that paradigm is a little bit different. So your first starting point is you're in another country's development policy paradigm. So every country, every partner of Australia has a development plan that sets out their own development policy and priorities. And it is setting out what is possible in that country and where they do and perhaps don't want Australian assistance. So you're there by invitation to be working on development. You then, of course, are looking at Australia's interests at play, perhaps our new development policy settings, the particular interests that Australia has in that country. And then when you're allocating your budget to a project, so bearing in mind that Australia has at any given point in time about a $32 billion portfolio of projects around the world. So when you're delivering that actual boots on the ground project, it is delivered almost entirely through non-government partners. We're not talking about Australian officials delivering development. They're managing those investments. But in fact, it's being delivered through managing contractors, NGOs, local organisations, universities. So it's really quite a different modus operandi for DFAT to be delivering a development assistance program where they're not in full control of the implementation, they're overseeing it. And that's a really, really big 
big challenge and big differentiation, I think, when it comes to these strategy conversations around what are we trying to do with the development program. We are constantly mediating other people's interests, other people's delivery modalities, as well as Australia's. So it's, it's a, I mean, it's a complexity masterclass there. Yeah, it makes me think of when I teach geoeconomics to students, you have to start with the observation that governments control most or all of the political and military space, but they don't control the economic space. There are companies, firms there who have their own interests, but who are increasingly instruments and architects of geoeconomic um, policies and, and phenomena that are of interest to governments. So you have a principal agent problem of trying to control them or direct them or constrain them in ways. And there's a sort of a parallel uh, I can see here in development. Maybe it's a little different because they are working for you and you have these formal mechanisms of oversight, whereas with companies, you're often just trying to get them to do something or not do something for national security reasons. But there is that dynamic there. It's really interesting. Darren, that, that is such a good analogy because I think the other thing we sometimes forget is that we here in Australia talk about development practitioners, but actually the main game, the main actors in development are local actors. They're church leaders, they're local government administrators, they're leaders of local organisations that are holding governments to account, they're prime ministers. So, so that definitely exists in the development space as well. Australia is not in control of the development outcome. They're backing outcomes that are actually being led by our local partners in country. All right, let's then turn to Australia. Can you sort of very quickly summarise where Australian development policy is at right now prior to the policy? Like if you were at an international meeting and you were talking with someone who had a snapshot opinion of Australia and who we are in the development space, where where have we come from? And that then leads us into a discussion of the policy, I guess. But let's let's try to set the scene for where this policy was landing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I probably wouldn't say this on the floor of a multilateral fora, but maybe um, maybe in the corridors of a, of a coffee or perhaps in the way that I would speak to, you know, some of the international visitors that, that are flowing through Canberra to talk about development at the moment. One of the things that I would probably start by explaining is that we've had a little bit of a topsy-turvy decade or so on development and that there's been a lot of strategic ambiguity in terms of what we're trying to be as a development country, development assistance provider, and that this new policy is trying to kind of stabilise that topsy-turviness. So when I talk about that topsy-turvy nature, I'm talking about, for example, big budget cuts. There was that glorious era of make poverty history. Aid was definitely cool. Um, it was a good thing to do. Kevin Rudd uh, famously used it uh, to great effect um, coming into a Security Council bid. And then we saw massive slashes of that aid budget era we saw the decommissioning of our aid agency and its integration into DFAT. This has big, big ramifications for how we think about development, how we do development, and where it sits as a, a separate and distinct valuable priority in, a, in the Australian Statecraft Toolkit. So I would describe the Australian development fraternity and community more broadly as having been sat in a defensive crouch for the last decade. It has felt in some way, shape or form that the aid budget and in fact the notion that Australia wants to help other countries achieve that good life and that that's in Australia's interest too, that has been all up for grabs 
over the last decade. So really uh, it's an area of Australian foreign policy that has had to fight hard just to exist at all. And I don't think that is development alone. I think we've seen some real challenges to foreign policy and diplomacy writ large in, in that space. But it's definitely been felt by the development agenda. Fast forward to a pandemic where suddenly that strategic imagination that saw that our lives and our future is is intrinsically linked to those of the region. Fast mm. forward to a, a China Solomon Islands security agreement that also made us wake up around how states do function and how that might be in Australia's interest to really back strong, vibrant, democratic institutions in our region. We've seen a real shift in the zeitgeist on development. And with the new government coming in, obviously coming out of a pandemic, it was simply a natural time to reset that development policy, to come out and do some what sounds like pretty basic but really important things, to be saying, hang on, in fact, poverty alleviation, sustainable development in the region is in Australia's national interest. This is actually one of the ways we're going to shore up stability in the region. This this is a main game of Australian statecraft. That's a big thing. We're seeing a foreign minister speaking about development at the launch of the policy a month ago. We saw an element of bipartisanship there. We had Birmingham in parliament. We had Wong launch this thing alongside Minister Conroy. There are conversations around development of foreign policy that are happening today that simply have not been possible over the last decade or so. So at the moment, I guess what I would explain in the margins is that Australia has had a fluctuating commitment to development. By no means is it back and squarely on the agenda. We're still one of the least generous donors when it comes to development assistance in our region. But what we're seeing right now is a stabilisation of the development program. And what we ought to be seeing is a very, very careful big rethink around who we want to be as a donor in the future. Speaking frankly, Darren, a few of our international partners scratch their heads over Australian development. Europeans will often be thinking, where the hell is Australia on development? Look, open a map, look at your region. Why is this not your main game in Australian foreign policy? Countries like the US would probably like Australia to be much more out and proud on issues of democracy. And of course, South Korea is now more or less outspending Australia when it comes to development. So there's a lot of head scratching going on in the international community around how Australia has had this very topsy-turvy decade on development. But there's some sort of cautious optimism that defensive crouch period is over and maybe we can actually reinvest in how we're seeing the region, how we're operating, how we're delivering results. You've already started answering my next question, but I guess to put some flesh onto the answer like what is the policy how is it framing the, the challenges to be solved where is it pointing australian policy into the future i mean we're resetting and we're opening up possibilities but how are we doing that this policy was launched a month ago at parliament and it really is the first development policy we have had in a decade and it, and it puts a line under a a few things that are unsurprising but notable. The first thing is the geographic focus. Uh, Australia is going to focus its development support on the Indo-Pacific primarily. 
that's not necessarily new, but there have been arguments floating around on how Australian development support, for example, should be focused where the most poverty occurs, perhaps in parts of Africa or globally. For better or for worse, Australia has made a pretty square focus on the Indo-Pacific in this policy. And we also give to multilaterals who operate outside of that regional area, but it's less of a feature. This policy is also really saying that we're going to focus on two flagship areas. We're going to increase and feature our support around gender equality and also climate change. And that's really recognising that climate change poses an absolutely existential threat to a lot of nations in our near neighbourhood and that gender equality is critical to unlocking development. But I guess they're the sort of the big flagship pieces. This policy hasn't necessarily looked to increase the aid budget. But I think perhaps one of the, the interesting focuses and perhaps something you'd be interested in, Darren, is that it is trying to say that really there are four focus areas of our approach. So we're trying to graduate away from the idea that you know, just education is the key to unlocking development or just economic growth is. And instead, Australia is saying that our approach is working with partners on four things. So the first is building effective and accountable states. So welcome back governance work. Welcome back that state building agenda, but in a much more nuanced way. We're talking about supporting states that can lead their own development aspirations, supporting their sovereignty as well. We're then looking to enhance resilience to external pressures and shocks. Now, some of your listeners will be saying, okay, that's uh, resilience in the face of climate change. Others, of course, will be saying that is resilience in the face of pretty hot geopolitical competition. So choose your own adventure there. The third, though, is that we're actually looking to connect Australia with other countries and with regional architecture, and we're looking to generate collective action on global challenges. So Australia's not looking to solve everything, but we are looking to ASEAN centrality. We are looking to working through regional mechanisms to solve collective action. And for me, the best thing about this policy is that it's indicating a much more modern conceptualization of development. We're not just saying that a development project will solve development. We're saying that strong states, connected regions and a response to shocks, trends, underlying fragilities is the way that Australia wants to think about development rather than just another project, just another meeting, just another ribbon-cutting ceremony. Now, whether we can graduate into that quite sophisticated, mature schematic or model of development, um, I don't know. The proof will be in the pudding in the coming years. But for me, this policy is doing two things. It's drawing a line under that topsy-turvy period we've had. And it's putting out a few opportunities for some smart Australian and regional leaders to make a more sophisticated development program for our country in the long term. Whether we've got the energy and effort to, to realise that, I think will be the job of you know people like us in the coming few years. You talked about in that state building category, allowing recipient countries to lead on their own aspirations. And there is a huge focus in the policy on being responsive to partner needs. And that obviously makes sense since if you're going to have zero impact if the recipient country is hostile to what you're trying to do. But of course, needs always and everywhere are going to be political, even as they're also material. Sometimes political leaders need 
something that might have questionable development logic because it's not being requested for development reasons. What's your mental model for managing this tension? Hmm. Oh, I'm going to throw this back at you after I've had a go at this, Darren. Okay. Um, but maybe, I mean, before the mental model, let, let's talk Turkey here. What we're actually saying is that the potential of elite leaders in countries in our region to want something that is good for them and that shores up their own power or gives them a chance to demonstrate their own leadership to their nation. Maybe they want a new palace. Maybe they want a new stadium, right? That will be on the shopping list of some leaders. And the question for a development practitioner is, okay, what is the development dividend of that? And what is the opportunity cost compared to, for example, an investment at a community level or an investment in long-term accountability or governance, right? So this is development 101. This is a sector that has had to deal with those challenges all the time. So first and foremost, this is not unusual. It is not unreal. And you are Pollyanna if you think that you can just listen to the region, act on what they say and get a great development outcome. That is, that is not what good listening and partnership is. Good partnership, good listening, good understanding is about mediating those differences. So my mental model for managing the sort of situation where one set of needs may not necessarily deliver a, a development outcome is it, probably three parts really what I'm talking about is a mental model, not for listening, but a mental model for decision making. And it's the process of putting partner needs at the start of a structured analytical decision making process. So first up, insights. You need to start with insights from that country. Now that might be that country's development plan. You might then expand your collection of insights across a super diverse range of people as possible in that country. You'd be mapping the perspectives. A prime minister is going to be motivated by very different things, for example, to a church leader in the highlands of PNG. You know, an SME in Indonesia is going to want very different things to an agricultural community for example. So this sounds simple. You're going out there and collecting those insights, but the key part of this mental model is that you're looking to collect insights from as diverse a range of demographics in that country as possible. And that is the antithesis of simply asking your elite counterparts for their shopping list. Okay, They are one critical partner, critical shaper of development in that country, but they will give one, two, three perspectives. You need as many as possible. So the first part of that mental model around listening is listening to understand, but also listening to really map those interests. I think the second part then is to not then directly act on that, but to go away and do your own analysis. So I'm using a, and we use at the lab, a mental model that puts that intelligence gathering of lived mm -hmm. experience first before we then do our analysis. And, and I've thought so much about this so often, you know, I've got an academic background, but I have a, an anthropology and a practitioner background as well. I think in development, you need to start with the lived experience first before you then introduce your academic analytical approach. So once you've gone and collected that lived experience and you've mapped those interests and insights, you then want to go away and understand what is influencing development in that country. What are the economic trends? What are the social trends? What are the environmental trends? What are the geopolitical trends, the security trends? 
all these different things that impact the trajectory of those good life decisions that a country is making are critical and so too are the range of Australian interests and capabilities. So the second part of the mental model, once you've listened, you've mapped the interest, you're then trying to analyse and look for what is going to impact development here and how is Australia best positioned to support both advancing our interests, so you're looking for convergence of interest between that country and yours, or perhaps where Australia might want to differentiate. We might have a position, for example, on human rights or gender equality that is not top priority for that partner country. That is okay and needs to be put on the table as well. So only then, once you've listened, you've done your analysis, do you then need to surface your choices? Because ultimately, you've got a very finite Australian development budget in that country. You're a small player in that country. You're not leading development, you're backing it. And so you need to be really, really clear-headed then about what you're making your bets on. Are you, for example, making a bet that Australian support to building the public administration of PNGs, what is going to enable that country to realise development aspirations, to shore up Australian interests in a stable PNG? Or are we saying, for example, in Myanmar, that the long-term play there may not be working with government, but it might be working with communities as well. So the gravitational pull um, as we listen and we see all these diverse needs and interests is always going to be to try and do it all because everything does matter. Health matters, gender rights matter, the climate matters, Mm. economies matter. Um, But that is an absolutely surefire way to achieve very little. So my mental model is a structured analytical piece Mm. that starts with insights. It then needs to do really solid trends analysis. I'd love to see a future um, forecasting capability on development in this country. And then you have to surface and make tough choices um, because strategic ambiguity does not work when you've got development programs that have five and ten year trajectories. Chopping and changing is a surefire way to ruin our bilateral relationships. So investing in these choices is super key. Um, But my answer to listening is start with putting partner needs first, um, but do not let go of a very good structured analytical process thereafter. But I don't know. I mean, Darren, does that make any sense to you? It does. It's it's much more broader and, and I guess more structured and generalizable. You know, when I think about this, I think about the, sort of the classic political leader who wants some kind of stadium or whatever in their constituency and how you think about approaching that kind of request, like that, that kind of extreme scenario. My starting point is politics happens. It happens here in Australia. Sometimes governments make decisions motivated exclusively by political considerations rather than welfare or some other, or security or some other national interest. And so we can't be purist about our our aid program to the extreme and ignore that political reality. But the second part of that uh, starting point is to recognise that giving in to nakedly political forces can actually have a counterproductive consequence. Like you might feel the need to give that leader what they're asking for in the short term because it maintains your access and allows the viability of other programs. But if over the medium to long term, it causes a backlash amongst the population and that leader is then booted out of office 
or becomes an authoritarian, then you can undermine everything you're trying to do. So that speaks to the need for a structured analytic process that you're describing. So I sort of endorse that for the breadth and the, and the, and the long-term aspect of the analysis. But then mm -hmm. I guess my principle of how you do this is to think about process as being the thing that you want to maintain your integrity on, like transparency, of decision-making, accountability for decisions that are made. Sometimes politics happens, but at least if you can, you know, not enable sort of hidden backroom deals, you can not, you can not enable sort of really poor quality worker rights or, or um, environmental standards to be trodden upon. Like you, you need to maintain the integrity of the process and the institutions as much as possible, even if the outcomes are more political. Uh, and mm -hmm. the third thing that I would say, that, or the, the, the final element of this is to remember then that if you're doing pol politics, that might actually create leverage to do good elsewhere. So don't waste the opportunity if you're building a, a stadium then to say, well, okay, well, here are some other priorities that we have. This is a package um, and let's try and work together to, to, to do something that works for all of us rather than that simple one-off transactional approach. But ultimately, as you say, these are hard choices they're, and they're political choices that are going to be made by governments, by the Australian government, and to balance impossible considerations that are irreconcilable. <laughs> and sometimes you're going to make things that look a little bit grimy, but that's kind of the way, you know, you're going to have to muddle your way through um, and, and make each decision on its merits rather than come up with a, a broad principle that this is what we're going to do in every circumstance. I mean, I think that's the truth of it, isn't it? Really, what, what I'm asking for is for our foreign policy leaders and frankly, our development community to try and overcome this idea of good versus bad decisions, short-term versus long-term decisions, political decisions versus development decisions. Because I actually just don't, don't see the world in that way. Development decisions for every country are political. It's a choice of allocating resources in one direction over another. But I think what a lot of us see is that the last decade or so, we just haven't always got the balance of those decisions right. And as you say, there hasn't necessarily been a transparent process on them either. So I don't think we're ever going to see a situation where Australia, you know, sets out a, um, a set of criteria, although we did once have that, on how we make development decisions. But I'm certainly seeing signs that we're getting a little bit better and need to get a heck of a lot better at weighing up those apples and oranges to, to, to make those bets on why we would make a politically motivated decision to generate access and elite influence. Because my gosh, the prime ministers of other countries and the ministers in other countries are key to their development. They're key to Australia. Absolutely. But it just can't come at the exclusion of thinking about how we shore up and support the long-term viability of states, which is through things like enabling people to speak out in their media, supporting community organisations who deliver basic services and all the other good things that we know is what makes vibrant, great nations. So for me, it's the structured analytical techniques that I think the development program need is because we're not good at thinking over multiple time horizons. We're really not good at thinking what has to happen now, maybe politically, next, maybe developmentally or, or future, maybe super long term. And we're not always good at thinking from multiple perspectives. So we need to weigh up what elite needs are in the region. We need to weigh up what uh, broader population needs are in the region. And we need to weigh up what Australian national interests are. Um, we just need something a little bit more robust about how we weigh those apples and oranges than a little bit of a lick of the finger, uh, um, you know, the testing of the wind and a decision to to build a palace over perhaps something a little bit more developmentally prosperous. Well, this is 
is a terrific point to bring in China. Uh, oh, here we go. Necessary, not only as in the geopolitical sense, but as a donor country that makes a different set of choices on this balance if we're going to simplify down between the political and, de and the developmental, potentially. The word China doesn't appear in the policy. Should it have? Actually, a little bit of a backstory. I was privy to the way that the government briefed the media. Um, unfortunately, Stephen Chidgett was on leave when the development policy came out, so he, he missed out on this one. But the way that government briefed the media on this new international development policy was fascinating because they they sort of tended to give a little bit of a, a choose-your-own-adventure in, in a three-pronged approach. So first of all, they said, hey, this new policy is, is about gender. It's about Australia's commitment to gender equality. Then they said, actually, this new policy is about climate and it's about Australia's commitment to climate change in the region. And then the third option they gave the media was actually this policy is definitely a reaction to the geopolitical circumstances and the potential concerns that we we have around uh, the operation of the PRC in the Indo-Pacific, okay? Again, you'd have to be living under a rock to not be reading the tea leaves on that. And what I had to have a little bit of a giggle about was that the Australian Ben Packham took the gender and the climate angle and out of the Guardian came the China angle. <laughs> and even as I walked around the floor of Parliament during the launch and, and quietly asked a, a whole series of senior bureaucrats what they made of the policy, even what came back was different, right? Oh, this policy is, is finally a recognition that climate change matters. Oh, this policy is finally a recognition that Australia is going to do more government-to-government -government assistance. And then somebody else was saying, no, 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 this policy is finally a recognition of the geopolitical circumstances and that aid ought to be instrumentalised in, in that context, right? So there's something for everyone in this policy and I don't think it's gone unnoticed that China doesn't appear. I think there are nods to that. So you'll see in the policy that we're committing Australia to being the region's partner of choice and, and what you picked up on, this listening, this partnering this belief in communities, this is Australia differentiating itself. Our comparative advantage, if you want to talk in those terms on development, is our reach and our people-to-people -people connections into communities in the region. But there's certainly a notable silence on whether or not navigating that strategic competition is also a key objective of the development program. And this policy is quite deliberately staying away from that. What it is saying is that actually Australia's best play on shoring up regional stability is by building sustainable development and poverty alleviation. Ultimately, there are those of us on the outside of this new government policy that is sort of saying, hang on, is this a really nuanced position where Australia is finally saying, you know what, our development agenda is best advanced in parallel to our geopolitical agenda rather than subordinate to it? And is, is that what this development policy is really saying? Are we putting to bed that that messy decade we've had um, where we've been saying we're there for development, but perhaps we've been there for all these other reasons as well. And we've kind of tied ourselves up in knots and uh, the region has seen us coming well and truly. And there are certainly those in the development sector that are saying, great, poverty is back, sustainable development is back, job done, let's move on. And Darren, I think you and I saw that at the ANU Development 
Development Policy Forum just this week. There was this buoyant excitement amongst the development community that finally we could get on with the business of talking about actual development rather than turning ourselves inside out with a geopolitical agenda. To be really honest, I think that that would be a little bit naive. Australia's geostrategic circumstances are tough. The demands on our foreign policy apparatus are tough. You'd have to be crazy to think that there was going to be somehow some purely purist developmental long-term play that was going to come out of this policy without it also needing to be very, very geopolitically tuned. But for better or for worse, um, our government has not named that explicitly. So I assume those conversations will still be happening, but they're not going to be on the books of the policy. And that is a little bit different, for example, to the US. The US has gone and established its own policy settings when it comes to the aid program and China. And the way that it's gone about that is not saying the aid program is a China program. It's by saying, actually, the type of development offer that the PRC is putting out there causes a few key threats to development in the region. For example, perhaps that China model of development, this is the US speaking, not me, but perhaps that China model of development is not great when it comes to minorities and human rights, transparency and accountable governments. Perhaps that China model of development may result in you know, a Sri Lanka situation of debt leverage and they are differentiating their development quite deliberately in relation to the threats that China poses to the development of the region and looking to provide an alternative development trajectory for countries that they are working with. Even New Zealand is naming China a little bit more. Development is actually featuring in its national security strategy. You've got South Korea coming out very strongly under the current administration around democratic principles and norms and institutions. Personally, I think it's a good thing for Australia not to be speaking about the PRC in our development policy. I think geopolitics just is. It, it is a relevant consideration as it is going to shape the course of development in our region. But I don't think it follows that your boutique aid budget that is probably better positioned to deliver development outcomes should be only delivering geopolitical outcomes. I've said, I think I said this a long time ago on the podcast, but what's interesting about what you just said and the US response is, is, is that it, it assumes that if you are going to name or sort of directly focus on the China angle, you're going to do so in a competitive sense, a defensive mm-hmm. crouch, like they're doing this and we're offering this in response. Mm-hmm. And it might be politically naive and or impossible, but I wonder, I just wonder whether or not there was scope or there is scope to frame China's involvement in a positive sense, like saying, we see merit in the concept of connectivity and we support, in principle, efforts to plug the infrastructure deficit, which we all know exists. And we will partner with anyone, including China, in transparent, effective and accountable projects that meet the highest standards that in, and that empower local people. You know, that's a more forward-leaning approach. And why not, you know, the next project that we're considering funding, a big one, why don't we design it and arrange for our, ourselves to, to fund it partially, but then say to the recipient state, look, we can't get all the money, but we've designed it and here are all the standards and so forth, but we need more money. Let's go to Beijing and see if they are willing to work with us 
according to the principles of our development policy, right? Isn't it, mm. wouldn't the ideal be that the Chinese do things the way we are setting out in this policy? <laughs> and the only way we could do that is if we are holding their hands with them. Now, they will probably say no. Can you, you react to the idea that, that we have any chance of sort of shaping the practices of how China does development policy? Mm, yeah, I mean, people are thinking about this in different ways, Darren, and, and I think the heart of what you're asking is, is development cooperation a potentially fruitful frontier for re-engagement with China? And at the height of, you know, things that were going down with the Solomon Islands security agreement and, and where I think the Australian foreign policy sort of zeitgeist was pretty hostile to the idea that Australia would actually cooperate um, with China. We, we actually hosted a Chatham House debate here in Canberra where a very smart senior official from the region said exactly what you're saying. Can't you get along well enough to have cooperation in the region together. And isn't this, just like we've maintained our police-to-police cooperation with China, could Australia actually maintain good relationships with China through development? I've got to say this um, this leader was pretty well laughed out of the room um, on the day. And, you know, fast forward a year or two now, you're sounding eminently more reasonable um, in, in the context of, of how, you know, Chinese-Australian relations are are going. But I think what you would have if you put that on the table in the Australian foreign policy community is a couple of different perspectives coming back at you, Darren. So the first might be a concern that, hey, you know what, when Australia does development, we do it by the international norms, rules and standards of the OECD. The bulk of uh, how China operates in its development cooperation is outside of those rules, norms and standards. So we don't necessarily have a good grasp on the extent to which China is or is not following the sorts of good practice metrics around transparency, locally led approaches, et cetera, et cetera. And there are concerns, no doubt, in the region around China not necessarily providing local labour opportunities on their big projects, for example. So Australia might have a perspective that is a little bit concerned by the practice of development coming out of China that might hold us back from cooperating. On the other hand, though, you'll have a group of people who'll say to you, yeah, 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 this is possible. And there's a very famous project. It was a tiny project, but everybody keeps citing it in Papua New Guinea of trilateral cooperation. So this idea has been around for a while. It was it was the, you know, the bee's knees when I was up in Moresby in 2013, 2014. And it was an example where through very practical needs and connections between our diplomats, Australia and China, and PNG co-funded a malaria project in PNG. Now, there are different reports about how successful that was. Um, but the challenges of that sort of donor cooperation, they're, they're not to be underestimated. So we can barely um, co-fund uh, projects with our great allies like the US or Japan or France. Um, we're doing more of it. And I think naturally our gaze will turn to how we do that with China. But it is not necessarily a quick fix, an easy fix. It would require really, really dedicated resources and support. So I think it's absolutely possible it ought to be on the horizon. Is Australia ready? Is China ready? Are our partners ready for that yet? I think 
practically you're looking for a really good project in a really good space i would personally be picking the sort of the climate space you know mangrove restoration shoring up you know support for communities in the face of massive climate shocks and other sorts of things i think that kind of area is where you might see effective development cooperation i can't imagine us going in holus bolus with china when we're working on you know macroeconomic reform projects in southeast asia or the pacific for example so i think there are areas of development that would be quite ripe for that trilateral cooperation i think it's right though in a in an overarching national policy that that's not set out. Well, on the question of being geopolitically savvy, you mentioned uh, the Minister for Development, Pat Conroy, giving a speech at ANU and taking questions. And he mentioned wanting to locate development policy at the heart of Australia's statecraft. Now, that's not quite language that appears in the policy, but the word statecraft and the acknowledgement that development policy is part of statecraft is certainly there. And I can absolutely see the benefits of integrating development frames into strategic thinking. But of course, this is going to cut both ways. Inevitably, if development is there in the center alongside strategic considerations, security considerations, and so forth, they are also going to rebound or reverberate back onto development policy. So we might be moving the strategists a bit towards the development frame, but at the same time, development policy is going to be pulled in the direction of geopolitics. So how do you sort of reconcile that trade-off? I mean, I'm sure you would support the idea that we want to locate development policy centrally, but it's a two-faced proposition, isn't it? Mm, Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important to recognise practically what a lot of analysts were were trying to do by injecting development into the heart of foreign policy the way that the Australian Council for International Development has been advocating, for example, or or the way that the Development Defence Diplomacy Dialogue has been talking about all elements of statecraft or all tools of statecraft as well. And I think Really, it came from a recognition of the last decade. There was a level of consensus. Alan Gingell was part of this discussion that we had somehow found ourselves in a situation where our international affairs, our foreign policy was lopsided. And to be perfectly frank, you know, academic hat off, political hat on, one of the only ways to make development in any country around the world relevant is to situate it differently. And we were dealing with a very securitized foreign policy environment. So the idea of talking about development being central to Australia's interests was really uh, a, a critical way that we were speaking to parliamentarians and leaders around the country around why this effort on behalf of Australia and the region mattered just as much in security terms, in Australian economic terms, as perhaps our defence efforts as well. So there was a very, very tactical reason why the development community needed to start talking about development and statecraft and perhaps step down from our ivory tower um, where we we really just wanted Australia to deliver development out of the goodness out of our hearts, of our hearts, out of a, a common sense recognition that this is just what Australia should be doing. That argument was not working, Darren. I mean, we saw cut upon cut. And really, when I certainly entered, you know, squarely into this development debate, it felt like I'd walk into a foreign policy room and people would look at me as though I was, you know, part of the Birkenstock Brigade, somehow some boutique, nice to do element of foreign policy, not actually central to the way that Australia engages in our region. Dare I say it, not Australia in the world, but Australia in the Indo-Pacific. There you go. There's your next podcast. 
tactically, that's where it came from. It was a political necessity to talk about development in foreign policy. And we were looking to see how other countries shored it up. And you need bipartisanship on your development project. And you also need to situate it on your National Security Council. You need your foreign policy leaders thinking about development, defence and diplomacy. Because guess what gets axed on budget night if you're not careful? It is quite often the aid budget, right? So just to be really, really clear about how we got here, it started out for some in the sector as something that was quite tactical. It was making development cool again for those that didn't Mm. speak aid and development. I think though there is a very, very, very serious and intellectual underpinning here as well. And that is this idea of integrated foreign policy. So if you look at the UK integrated review um, that is looking at how different elements of foreign policy need to advance sort of consistent agendas, or if you look at the US and you see a development defence diplomacy, that 3D imaginative approach, um, what we see in those sorts of approaches is a better weighing up of pros and cons and a recognition that as a nation where our international engagement has proliferated across government departments, just like you were saying, there needs to be a way to organise a level of consistency and coherency. So speaking frankly, I don't want my nation investing on the one hand in livelihoods and development and preventing conflict and on the other hand, weapons tradings with authoritarian regimes, right? I would prefer a place for that consistency discussion to come out. So the idea of integrating your statecraft under some sort of organising principle, I think has a heck of a lot of merit here in Australia. It's behind why DFAT established the Office of the Pacific. It's behind the Office of Southeast Asia as well. But the trade-off comes when you dig into what that integration looks like. And for me, integrating development as a tool of statecraft is not about subordinating it to one objective. It is actually about recognising that our trade portfolio is great at advancing trade, and that's in Australia's interests. Our development portfolio is great at advancing development, and that's in our interests. Our diplomatic and our broader international affairs portfolio is fantastic on your Ginjal definition at advancing Australia's foreign policy and Australia's interests, and that all these things are absolutely legitimate, but each tool of statecraft has a different and complementary role to play. And I think where we've tripped ourselves up, not to become too academic, is when we haven't realised the distinct comparative advantages Mm. of those tools of statecraft. And Brendan Sargent, um, before we lost him a year or two ago, um, was talking to me a lot about the need for Australia to get much clearer about the hierarchy of national interests that we have and which elements of our statecraft are best suited to advancing those. We've opened the space for my last substantive question here, which is on climate change, speaking of overarching principles. When I started the podcast and I was talking about questions of economic growth, um, poverty alleviation, these are all questions where we have, at least I have familiar economic models, right? What causes the conditions for growth? You know, for example, we need high quality institutions, right? And, and we need um, productive capital. We need a, we need human capital. Like we, we, we know what those debates look like and there are accessible models for designing, say, a development policy that would promote economic growth. 
And so I'm speaking from a position of real ignorance here. And look, I'm planning to, to have further conversations about climate change on the podcast into the future. But I really am struggling to, for an entry point for a model of of using climate change or sort of centering climate change as the center of, of, of a foreign policy or of a development policy. How do we construct a climate focused policy? Is it just that we put climate investments and climate risks at the top of a list of priorities alongside gender and push down education or health or, or governance? Or is there some other kind of framework to, to begin to think about the centrality of climate change in everything that we're doing? I'd really recommend your your readers have a look at the work of people like Robert Glasser from from ASPE or the World Wildlife Fund have done some fantastic work in this space. But look, coming into the policy, it was a it was an existential question. So its government went out and consulted. Um, the question went something along the lines of of this: If climate change is going to define the development trajectory of nations in our region, um, then how? is it that we're going to centre that in the policy? Because as the argument goes, there's really no point in investing in state effectiveness. There's no point in investing in health and education if people don't have food to feed themselves because of food insecurity and climate-induced disasters, if they don't have, frankly, a, a country to call home because it's gone underwater. So the existential nature of this is absolutely top of mind for regional leaders and for development leaders here. Practically, what you do in a policy to respond is is pretty tough. So on one reading, um, you throw the baby out with the bathwater and you, your whole development policy should just be a climate change policy. Gear everything towards this existential crisis in our region. Um, we haven't seen government choose to do that, but what you may see is that where this policy is translated into action country by country, I think you're going to see a lot more climate analysis underpinning that, a lot more climate-related programming, and there's a requirement in this policy to make sure that the vast, vast, vast majority of every single development program, a health program, an education program, is actually injecting climate change and climate relevant targets, right? So this is how Australia mainstreamed, we call it, gender as well. We said we're not going to have specific big gender programs. We'll have a few of those, but actually we're going to expect that our whole portfolio takes account of gender. So that's a choice that this government has made. There's not significant additional money, for example, that you would expect to go to climate programming. The expectation is that we will shift this $32 billion portfolio of investments to by and large all be climate responsive in some way, shape or form. Yeah. Now, the critics of that actually picked up on exactly what you're saying, which is, hang on, you're telling your bureaucracy that gender matters. You're telling your bureaucracy that climate matters. You're telling your bureaucracy that health and education and poverty alleviation and, and, and a more localised approach to partnership and partner-led development matters. That's a hell of a lot of priorities that a poor bureaucrat has to keep in mind. Um, and definitely the, the fear, the risk that the development community and analysts are seeing is that a increased focus on climate is likely to come at the cost of health and education unless there is more money around. Um, so I think we're dealing with sort of a, a suboptimal situation. Clearly the climate challenge is beyond the scope um, of anything that a boutique development program is going to be able to seriously address. Um, but I think it's absolutely right to see a bit of a pivot over time 
in the program towards climate, um, but we're going to be watching that that doesn't come at a cost um, of what we do know works elsewhere, health, education, governance, investments as well. So a bit of a tricky, I think, a bit of a tricky one. I think government's largely hedging their bets. They're saying climate matters. They're looking for a shift. um, But is the development policy going to be the panacea for climate change and adaptation in the region? Like, hell no. Hell no. In fact, the region wants to to sort out our fossil fuel dependencies first. um, And that is probably a much more relevant priority for Australia. Fair, fair. Well, thanks, Bridie. This has been terrific. Before we move on to recommendations, I just want to invite you to share a memory of Alan. Mm, well, I mean, I have this really powerful visual memory, actually. Um, when when COVID-19 hit and, you know, so many of us, and Alan was such a backer of this, really wanted to show that development was was going to matter Australia's pandemic response was going to be delivered through our development program. We held a webinar, which sounded very cool, new and trendy um, <laughs> back back then, um, but it was one of the, the first of its kind. And so my favourite visual memory of Alan was I had to stand and speak alongside him and Hugh White, and they had these bloody beautiful, sophisticated-looking bookcases. And I had a one-and-a-half-year-old at the time and was working from a shipping container in my backyard. Perhaps the more special one was that Alan really gave me the pat on the back and give it a go to start the Development Intelligence Lab. And in a crisis of confidence, I I went to him and I said, oh, Alan, I'm just seeing something missing in the Australian foreign policy landscape. I'm I'm missing a a strategic conversation about development, but I don't know know where to go to, to get somebody like you talking about it. And, um, and he told me to, you know, pull up my big girl pants. So he really was someone that sort of inspired me to, to give this a go and, and try to have a better conversation about development and foreign policy in this country. And that was, a, that was a big thing for me, to have somebody like that do that and then to discover after his passing that he has done that for hundreds of people in Australia, yourself included, Darren. So they're, they're probably the, the two most powerful memories I have of Alan and I miss him a hell of a lot. That's lovely. Thank you. Well, reading, listening and watching, would you like to share something? Oh, I am voraciously reading novels at the moment, but maybe I can shoot you a couple of of links for your show notes because actually Mm -hmm. um, what I want to put on everybody's radar is, you know, I'm always asked, what is the one thing I could read to get a sense of development? And and a lot of foreign Mm -hmm. policy makers are asking this at the moment. It's suddenly relevant um, to to their world. So my pick would be Stefan Durkin's Gambling on Development. I think it's a really good book and responds to what you described in your in your opening, Darren, around, you know, in the past we've had very dominant technical and economic models for development and they are critical. But Stefan Durkin really maps out for us what it is to be a developing country and how it is that countries like Australia make choices to back that. It's a fun read. It basically says you're making a gamble, you're making a bet on development and that's a good way into the messy complexity of the development world and listening i'm listening endlessly to hania rani at the moment a beautiful composer she's helping me sort of have some thoughtful thoughts in the in the quieter moments of my day so that would be my listening recommendation thank you bridie well i've got a connected listening and watching the listening is my dear audience the two soundtracks from the kids' TV show, Bluey, which every Australian will know, and increasingly those abroad as well. The albums are called Bluey the Album, 
and dance mode. Look, the, the main composer for the show is a guy named Joff Bush, and I really do think he's the definition of a virtuoso composer and musician. He can blend and like hop between a range of styles, and he does so on these soundtracks, folk, bluegrass, grunge metal, techno, electronica, and classical. And he then uses a range of instruments in his compositions, which are really fun to listen to with the kids. Yes, there are some songs that are aimed exclusively at young kids, and some of those can be a bit annoying, but most of the works are really for everyone. Some of my favourites are Copycat, Camping, Army, Omelette, and my favourite composition by far is Rain. And so while I'm here, I need to weigh into this debate and give my top five Bluey episodes. Fifth, I would say, is Relax. Fourth, Takeaway. Three, Rain. And then equal first, because I can't decide between either of them, but I will fight anyone who wants to disagree with me on this, are uh, Sleepy Time and Cricket, because they both make me cry every time I watch them. Oh, Are you a Bluey fan, Brian? Massive fan. And you know what? You have to Google the Soweto Gospel Choir. They actually do a choral version of the Bluey theme. It is stunning. So add that to your list, Darren. Will do, will do. Well, thanks, Brian. This was super fun and I learned a lot. So really grateful that you could join us today on the podcast. Oh, thanks for helping in understanding what it is we're looking at in the world, Darren. Good on you. Thanks, Bridie. Well, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We thank Corbin Duncan for audio editing today and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Until next time. Thank you.